Very good morning to everyone in Bishan and some some are casting to Adam. Very good morning to you too. This uh, morning, um, we unfortunately, Pastor Adrian uh, was not uh, well in his voice, so that's why we are doing some more casts to those who are at Adam. So I, we do apologize. But for those who are not familiar with Pastor Adrian, he's taller than me, but I'm more handsome. So that's how you tell the difference. <laughs> Just joking, okay? No need to tell him. Allow me to pray as I give you the Lord's word. Father, fill me with your spirit to be able to speak your word with truth, clarity, faithfulness, and boldness. And that all your people may hear your word, your voice speaking to them as to what we can understand and learn from the birth narrative of our Lord Jesus Christ. Something that many of us are familiar with, but may we be refreshed and learn something that we may have never considered before. We pray that the Spirit of God will work into our hearts and plant these wonderful gospel truth in all of us and help us to appreciate our Savior. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. This morning, we are focusing on the Gospel of Matthew and only these short verses, verses 18 all the way to 25. In fact, if you look at the... I must tell you first, I don't have slides, so... I want you to, if you can, follow me with your physical Bible you have or your digital devices. If you were to look at the Gospel of Matthew from chapter 1, verse 1 to 16, you will see that Matthew put in effort to help us to trace the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why he was doing this is because he was writing to a Jewish audience and wanted to prove that how he was from the son of Abraham and the son of David, and why he is the Lord, he is the one that God had been promising. And he could have actually ended at verse 16, and I read, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And he could have actually carried on in chapter 2, talking about the wise man who saw the star. But we find that how Matthew actually took time to explain this part about the birth narrative of Jesus in verse 18 to 25. So why? Why was he doing this? Because it seemed that during the time when Matthew was writing this gospel, he was actually doing a defense, trying to prove to people, both Jew and Gentile, that Jesus is the Christ. And at the same time, there were questions going around in the first century in Matthew's time about the improbability and maybe even in the impossibility of the virgin birth. Because how can this be true? What is a virgin birth? It has never happened before. And so because it has never happened before and it almost sounds ridiculous, Jesus must have a biological father and mother. In fact, we see Matthew actually acknowledging that Jesus has a biological mother because in verse 16, he says, um, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And verse 18, when his mother, Mary. So we know that the biological mother of Jesus has been identified. But how about the father? In fact, during the days of Jesus himself, there were actually questions, 
some very likely were questioning about Jesus' family background because he was making, he was making himself known and the religious leaders all were, he was, he was drawing a lot of attention to himself. And so people wanted to find out more about him. And in fact, in the discourse that he had with the religious leaders and the crowd in John chapter 8, we do see a remark that seems odd in the, initially. In John chapter 8, verse 41, as Jesus was accusing them that they were not following their father Abraham, but actually following the father, the devil, they were furious. And what happened is that how they responded. And the response is really odd because they say, we are not born of sexual immorality. So why would they have replied in such a way? Some scholars, as they were, think, as they were writing this, they, were, they also agreed that it is very likely it was actually a slight, a, a, a remark against Jesus' background that they know that they were born legitimately. They know their father and mother. But you, the one who called yourself to be someone, a rabbi, we checked out your background and we questioned whether you were born legitimately, whether you were born within a legitimate marriage. And so that's why they say, we were not born of sexual immorality. And so here, that's why we see Matthew writing this, to defend the virgin conception and birth of Jesus Christ. But let me bring it to us today. Do you know for us, to be, for us the belief and the teaching of the virgin birth is a very important core doctrine and truth in the Christian faith? So much so that it is included in the Apostles' Creed, whereby it reads, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is considered a core Christian truth, which means, which means that if you do not believe in the virgin conception and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you deny it, you can't call yourself a Christian. Let me repeat that again. If you deny the virgin conception and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot call yourself a Christian. One of the things that we were learning in the two ways to live and is that how, and also late, oh sorry, not two ways to live, but rather in Romans chapter uh, 14, 15, about the weak and the strong Christian, a weak faith and a strong Christian faith, is that how in our Christian faith there are many teachings and there are at least three broad categories in which we can categorize our teaching. The first is core truth, whereby anybody who denies these core truths cannot call themselves Christian. And one of it will be the virgin birth, conception and birth. The next one will be truth that we are, are important, but we can defer. We can defer in terms of our understanding and even our practices. And of course, the last tier will be preferences, so to speak. So the virgin birth is a very important truth for us to embrace itself. And that is why Matthew wrote this. And I think it is important for us this morning to examine together about what Matthew has written for us and study it. I have one main point for my message today. And the main point is that Jesus is the only one who can save us from our sins. Jesus is the only one who can save us from our sins. 
And there are three things that I want to highlight in this narrative itself, three outlines. The first is an unexpected pregnancy. An unexpected pregnancy. The second outline is an unexpected visit. An unexpected visit. And the last is an unexpected response. An unexpected response. So let's look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now Matthew is writing from the perspective of Joseph, the husband, because he wants to help us to see what was going through Joseph's mind as he experienced this encounter itself. That's why we don't hear much about Mary. In fact, Mary is being spoken more in the Gospel of Luke. So what is this idea of being betrothed in verse 18? Now, betrothed is quite a different and maybe even a strange, maybe considered a strange concept in our modern-day context. Because betrothed means that this person has pledged to be married to this person and they are already considered legally married and they call themselves husband and wife. And so this is a legally binding something in their culture and society would acknowledge. Unlike today, which is different, whereby if you, you know, as uh, usually the men, most of the time I have heard, I mean, in our premarital counseling, most of the time it's the men who propose and say that will you be my wife and the, uh, your fiancé uh, uh, says yes and then they accept and then they will start the proceeding itself. But even then, even though she may have accepted the proposal, it's not legally binding. That things can be changed, there can be a change of answer, there is no um, uh, effect in that the person now has to go through a proceeding of divorce. The, even though we as a culture recognize that it's almost a form of commitment, but it is not legally binding. But unlike in those days, it is a, legal, a legally binding contract in that they agree to be married as husband and wife. The interesting thing is that during the time of betrothal and the time that they come together as husband and wife living together, to consummate the marriage, there is actually a time gap that can be as long as one year. And in that one year period, they are actually living apart. The wife-to-be the, the wife continues to live with the father and the husband lives to get on his own himself. And there's a one-year gap. And often, people wonder why is there a gap? Some scholars say that the reason that there's a one-year gap is because it is too it is to prove that both of them have been loyal or there is fidelity to each other. Because if somehow along the way, if the woman has been promiscuous or has committed adultery, then a pregnancy will come through. Or if the man himself has been committing adultery, then the relationship, the illicit relationship that he has with another woman will also surface. So the one year was to protect both parties before they come together itself, to prove that both are right before the Lord and in their culture and context itself. So this is something that um, very important for us to know, that the idea of betrothed means they were really legally married in the eyes of the culture, legally married in their society, and married in the eyes of the Lord himself. That's why we see the word, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, this incident happened itself. But if you were to examine here, we also see something interesting, because an unexpected thing happened, and for Joseph, for the very first time, he was shocked. 
Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So if there was a year gap between Mary's, uh, the agreement of the betrothal and for Mary to move in with Joseph, right? Finally, Mary came in and Joseph, being the young husband, excited to be with his wife, finally to stay together, live together, to consummate the marriage and to be intimate with his wife. What a shock, a shocking surprise you have seen. Something. The way in which Matthew describes here she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit tells us that how it was Joseph himself who found out rather than it was Mary herself who shared what had happened. Because we know that the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 visited Mary and told Mary what was going to happen. But we wonder whether if Mary would have said something would have changed Joseph's mind. But we know from here that Joseph was the one who found out. He found out the, the pregnancy and I'm sure he must have been really shocked and disappointed that how it is not possible to keep a pregnancy itself beyond a certain time frame itself. And so what is the immediate response of Joseph? In verse 19, and her husband, again, Matthew tells us this is a marriage, that it is marriage he's recognized as the husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, the response of Joseph confirms for us two things in this narrative. One, Mary and Joseph are legally married. That is why he is troubled with this and he's being addressed as the husband. And the second thing, very important, why he's considering divorce is not only because he's legally married, but the truth is very clearly that Matthew is trying to help us to see the baby in Mary does not belong to Joseph. The baby in Mary does not belong to Joseph. And that's why he's considering to divorce her. The idea of Joseph being a just man not only speaks about him being what means some form of righteous before his faith, but he wanted to do what was right according to God's law. And so according to God's law, if such an incident had happened, the recourse is divorce. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 33 to 27, there are laws stipulating what happens if the betrothed virgin is found to be with child. And so there are two broad scenarios that it gives to us about what to do. First, if this betrothed virgin has an illicit affair with another man and she willingly participated in it, then both of them will be condemned punishment to death. But if the other scenario is that if this betrothed virgin was raped, that means she was unwilling to be part of this uh, sexual relationship, then only the man will be condemned to death by stoning itself. But, but in the first century in Joseph's time, when the Roman Empire took over the land, they also took away the Jewish practice of punishment by death. So they couldn't do this on their own. So that's why in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the religious leaders did not, do this, uh, did not do this by themselves, but rather went to the Roman authorities and got them to try to condemn Jesus to death. And so that's why we see here that how because of this unexpected pregnancy itself, Joseph was considering to divorce, to do what was right. But at the same time, we also see Joseph was also thinking about Mary. Now, we do not know whether he, was, he had some sense of uh, feelings or love for her, but we know that he was a man who was considering because he could have just divorced her openly 
and cause her to be put to shame before all others and ruin her reputation completely. But instead, he chose to divorce her quietly in verse 19. Now, let me stop here and let me try to apply these two verses that what we have learned from this narrative. The first application is this. When God wants to use you for His purpose and glory, be prepared for the unexpected and the big change in your life. These two very simple, normal folks wanted to come together, all part as something that everybody would experience in those days, were not extraordinary people. They just wanted to live a simple life. But here, God entered into their lives and did something extraordinary, and that required an extraordinary change. You know, why is it that when God wants to use us, we ought to expect the unexpected and that we should expect a big change? It's because God's plans and ways are not ours. They are far greater, far loftier, more than we could ever imagine and think of, may not even consider. There are things that I would myself would not have considered to be here standing before you giving the Lord's word 10 years ago. But God's plans are great. So if God wants to use you for His glory and purpose, expect the unexpected and expect a big change. The second application that I can derive from these full two verses is this. Marriage and sexual purity are very important to God. Marriage and sexual purity are very important to God. And let me tell you that this is not what the world values. In fact, what the world advertises, markets itself, through the different ways, social media and through the, through the different modes of entertainment in shows and TV movies, none of these things, of these values, are being taught by the world itself. In fact, they go the alternative. They promote and encourage you to explore your true sexuality. Not one that is ordained by God, but something that you yourself can determine and how there's such a level of fluidity that you can choose what you want to become and that you can explore that your sexuality. You're right. This is your right. Nobody can say no to you. Nobody can say that you are doing wrong. You are free to do so and to discover your true self, your true self, even if it means sleeping around and possibly being unfaithful to your spouse and to your marriage vows. This is what the world is teaching us today. And they are doing it very well. And let me tell you, especially not only to us as Christians, but specifically to the younger ones. This is the world's value. And that you have to ask yourself this question. Am I going to choose to follow after the ways of the Lord or the ways of the world? Are you going to choose to push back against these cultural norms, this narrative that the world is pushing upon you to tell you it's okay to go about exploring your sexuality, it's okay to go about sleeping all around, it's okay to, to divorce easily, however it might be, in your marriage? This is something that we need to ask ourselves because in here we see that how God is telling us not only is His when he wants to use you, there will be big changes in your life, but marriage and sexual purity is vitally important to him. And no doubt, we see this is the response of a man who follows after God, which is Joseph himself. 
So the question that we want to ask ourselves in Joseph's mind is, are you, how are we go, how, how is Joseph going to do this of divorcing Mary and who is this child? Will possibly be in Joseph's mind himself as he was considering this in verse 19. And that comes to the next part, the unexpected visit. But as he considered, verse 20, these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. You see, in Joseph, imagine if you were in Joseph, a, a very big question you'll be asking yourself is, who does this child belong to? Who is the biological father? I want to know. I mean, it may not assuage the anger and the indignation of a young husband who did not have his right to his wife, but surely he will want to know. And so, as he pondered over this, these questions, it was a supernatural experience, a visit by the angel that answered these questions. Now, we know that Joseph was actually fearful to take on Mary as his wife because we see from the response of the angel in verse 20, the angel said, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. So why would he be afraid to take Mary as his wife? Why, why, why take the route of divorce? Well, a few possible reasons. Is one is that if he were to take Mary as his wife, his reputation will be ruined in many ways because it will mean that this child was illegitimate this child is not his but if he had divorced mary which is his right and nobody would blame him he would have cut himself off from this mess and would become and would be seen as clean and righteous and just before the people and god's law so that will be one reason the fear of his own reputation being ruined. The second is the fear of Mary's reputation. If Mary would have such, would be have the audacity to have an illicit sexual affair while he, she was pledged to Joseph, then it would question Mary's character and behavior. And would this be someone that you want to spend the rest of your life with? A very reasonable question to ask. Something that every person, not just only a man Joseph, but a woman also to consider. If this person has, a, has been shown to prove to be unfaithful, why would I want to continue to pledge myself to this person? Because if it happened once, it can happen again. And of course, the last possible reason, a potential scandal in the community that he will be involved in. In the community as such as these, it will be very small and tight-knit. It wouldn't be difficult for the rest of the neighbours to know that something scandalous has happened itself, which we have already seen that how in some ways the people have kind of felt that there was something questionable about Jesus' past. So these questions needed to be answered, and so it took no less than the appearance of an angel to explain to Joseph and to answer his question. And so there are a few things that we can gather from the, uh, from the angel's response. First, verse 20, the second part. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now Matthew is telling us that the conception of Jesus Christ had no biological male 
participation. In fact, in verse 18, he repeats that, he, rather he says it the first time, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. But obviously, Joseph does not know about this. So the angel of the Lord appeared before Joseph and told him this. This is not something that was natural. It was supernatural. The, the, the conception happened in Mary was from the Holy Spirit. That's one. Secondly, he doesn't know. In fact, Matthew doesn't actually tell us that the child is a boy until the angel declares, verse 21, she will bear a son. It will be a son. And the next thing is, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, obviously, Joseph would know by now that this child not only um, is not his, but it is from the Lord. But by naming his child, by naming this child, he himself exercising the right as the husband, he is actually showing that he as the husband and also as the adoptive father has adopted this child to be his. That's why he has the right to name his child. That's why angel has asked him, you will name this child Jesus. The fourth thing is the name Jesus, which is a very common name, which is actually a Greek derivative of the name Joshua in Hebrew, means Yahweh saves. To tell us this name of the child has a significant, at least a glimpse, that somehow God will use this child to do something great in saving. And then the last one is he will save his people from sin. Now, if you, were, if you are familiar with the Old Testament narrative, you will realize that how God in past had raised many of his servants, judges, prophets, and kings to do a work of salvation. From Moses saving the people from the land and the people of Egypt, to the kings saving from the Philistines and all the other Gentile idolatrous nation, and even to the prophets too also. So this was not something new or extraordinary of raising people to save. But there was only one difference about this child, something that was never mentioned before or hence have ever been, in that this child, verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. This child is going to be different. This child is going to be extraordinary. You see, in the midst of the time of Joseph, the Roman Empire was in control and was taking over charge over Israel as a nation. So Israel was not an independent nation. It couldn't do whatever it wanted. It couldn't rule on its own. And so it was under subjugation. And what would they want? They want to be free from this. They want to be able to run on their own. And so this will be something that they, a lot of the Jewish leaders and the Jews themselves have been hoping to find. And they believe that one day God will send a Messiah, someone anointed, to free them like he freed them from the hands of the Egyptians, to free them from the clutches of this Roman Empire. But what was different is that this child has come to save them, but not save them from the external Roman Empire, but rather save them from a deeper, insidious problem called sin. And so not only does the the angel tells Joseph about who this child may be, but also to tell that how this was part of a fulfilling of a promise that God had made 700 years ago by the prophet Isaiah. And how he quotes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
Now, let me take some time to explain about the idea of this extraordinary sign called a virgin shall conceive. Now, in those days, even today also, there's nothing extraordinary about a virgin conceiving, right? In fact, in the purity of marriage and sexuality, you expect that the, both, of course, men and, of course, the women to be virgin before they have their first child. So there's nothing extraordinary here. So what is so extraordinary about the idea that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son? The idea here is that this particular woman chosen will not only, only be a virgin when she is conceived, but will remain as a status as being a virgin even after she gives birth. And this is unheard of. Because once you, before you conceive, you are a virgin, everybody understands, but once you have conceived, you can't be a virgin anymore. But this extraordinary sign is that this virgin will be a virgin when she conceives, and then she will remain as a virgin even after she gives birth. That is why in verse 25, Matthew helped us to understand this. Joseph, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, which tells us that Mary maintained the status as being virgin from conception to birth itself. And today, this is something unheard of. But I must also tell you that today, there are medical advances that there are possibility of virgin birth. Did you know that? Because of IVF, artificial insemination, how a woman doesn't have to experience sexual relationship with a man in order to conceive. So they will find a donor egg and her, a donor sperm and her egg harvested, inseminate and then plant it into her womb and then she conceives. And the medical uh, side will call this like a virgin birth. So isn't that very similar to Jesus? What's so different? The difference is they still needed a donor sperm in order to inseminate the egg. But here we see that Jesus was conceived from the power of the Holy Spirit himself. That is why, that is the great difference. And this is the significance. The significance that this lady will remain as a virgin from conception to birth tells us that God has done this sign, this work, and it tells us finally that God has come to be with us. That is why Matthew tells us the word Emmanuel means God with us. Now, why is this extraordinary, that God being with us? Because if you remember in our series in Two Ways to Live, the word sin is defined as what? The core definition of sin is not about that we do wrong, that we murder, that we lie, that we cheat, that we steal. These are no doubt wrong things, but the core definition of sin is that we rebel against God. We have a broken relationship with God. There's a chasm between us and God that cannot be crossed by us. And because we have a broken relationship of, with God, we have rebelled against God, that is why this is sin, and that is why we have manifested this rebellion in the way we treat each other. We hate, we steal, we kill, we lie, we cheat, we commit adultery, and so on and so forth. Sin, the core definition of sin is that we have been separated from God. 
but this child is going to do something that no other prophet, king, priest, no other person has ever done before. It is to bring us back to God himself. Extraordinary. So what does it mean for us in our, in our application here? One, when God wants to use you for his purpose and his glory, would you be willing to abandon your plans and to obey God? When God wants to use you for his purpose, would you be willing to abandon your plans and to obey him instead? You see, Joseph was thinking of proceeding what was rightfully his, to divorce Mary, cut himself from this messiness, and then live his life as how expected as it would be, that he's in control, all things are predictable, I don't have to worry about anything. But here the angel of the Lord is telling him something and commanding him and inviting him, would you obey the Lord? I've learned this as a young, as a young Christian who wanting to serve God, that there is a great difference in asking God to be a part of my plans, part of my will and my ideas, as opposed to praying to God, how can I be a part of His plans to be where He is? You see, the former tells us that I am the one who is in control. God, do you want to be a part of it, such audacity as one? Or would I be in humility, say, God, can I be a part of your plans? I want to follow you to obey you. But it would mean one thing. If you want to follow and obey God, you have to abandon your plans. You have to abandon your ways. And maybe even give up your right and be prepared to risk losing your reputation, to risk a possible scandal on how people may perceive you to be. Because the truth is, this visitation of the angel to Joseph was a personal visitation. Nobody would know, right? Nobody would know. But if he were to take on Mary as his wife and to, care and to acknowledge this child that she carries as his own, then what he feared would come true. His reputation ruined, the scandal in the community, and how people will look at him. No longer Joseph the just man, but maybe Joseph, the man who compromises, Joseph who has no standard. Would you be willing to do so for the Lord? Would you be willing to obey Him in that way? The second thing that I learned from here is that life begins at conception. Life begins at conception. Now to us, it may seem something very take for granted, we don't really, we're not troubled by it. But let me tell you that today the world is not telling you that. The world doesn't believe in that. The world believes that when a woman is pregnant or has a, or is pregnant and she's found with a, a fetus, they wouldn't even acknowledge it as a living thing, but as something as crude as a clump of cells. And how that is nothing, not a person at all. And that gives them the right and the justification to abort however it might be. But here we know very clearly as what the angel has told Joseph, that, conception, that life begins at conception. 
it is in here. That how even, if I'm even dare say, as us as Christian believers, that even before life begins, God already knows the life that He will give. You know, I'm a father of two sons, eight and six years old, Callum and Cohen. And as my wife and I, when we were uh, ready to, be, um, to have a child, we did whatever we did, you know, we, we, we turned to be healthy, you know, we exercised, and then we do whatever was told that would be, give us the best result to, to get a, um, a pregnancy, the conception. But I can tell you that it's not as easy as it seems to be. In fact, we have heard of our own um, stories from others and also from people that you might know that how even though you may be both healthy, husband and wife, both of you doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that automatically you will have a child. I've heard stories and know of people personally who have tried for years and it took years before they had a child and some did not. It tells you that life is not under your control. It's under God. It is God Himself who gives life. And because it is God who gives life, that's why we can be so certain that life begins at conception itself. The very thing that begins when the sperm enters into an egg is life itself already, not a clump of cells. And so if you were in Joseph's shoes, what would you do? Would you follow your own plans and divorce Mary and then escape from this possible nightmare, messy scenario and keep your life as it is, predictable and expected? Or would you take the step of faith to obey God and be willing to be a part of His plan and purposes? And that is my challenge to you this morning. My challenge to you is, would you take the step of obeying God and be willing to participate in His plans and purpose? And so it comes to the next part, verse 24, 25, an unexpected response. An unexpected response because initially Joseph wanted to divorce Mary, but now we see a different. Verse 24, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. And so we see that how Joseph responded in obedience. He took that step of faith. He obeyed God's command through the angel. The first thing is, he took his wife, verse 24, which tells us he accepted her as his wife. He did not when proceed to divorce her. Because against all his human instinct and rational and logic, he trusted in what the angel told him. Secondly, he did not know her sexually only after she had, he, she had given birth to Jesus, verse 25, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, which tells us that she remained in status as a virgin from conception to birth. And only after that did he uh, exercise his right as a husband and consummate the marriage itself. Interestingly, in those days, consummating the marriage itself sexually is not a requirement for the marriage to be binding and legal. Unlike today, which I did some research, that in today, if you do not know, one reason why the law of the, the, our society and our law will recognize a marriage void is when there is no consummation of the marriage itself. It is a reason for, to void, to annul the marriage itself. But here, 
Joseph did not. He exercised self-restraining control, trusted in the Lord, and after that, only after Mary gave birth to Jesus, then he consummated. And we know that Jesus later on had brothers and sisters. Just a side thing. I always tell this joke. I always think it's a funny thing. Is that it's always very tough to have Jesus as your brother or as your oldest brother, right? Because the mother will always be saying to you, why can't you be like Jesus, right? Every day, every morning, why can't you pack up, eat like Jesus, do your work like Jesus, you see, he's so perfect. Maybe that is the reason why his siblings didn't really like him and we see in some of the narrative itself. Because Jesus is the perfect son, the perfect child. But we know that Mary did not remain virgin, which is contrary to how the Catholics, the Roman Catholics believe that she was remained virgin throughout itself because she had children. And the last thing is he called his name Jesus not only in obedience to the angel, but accepting this child to be his. Even though he's not the biological father, he is the adoptive father, but this is my son, that I will look after him as my son. How can I apply this for us? Do you know that nothing is more precious to the Lord than your obedience? Nothing is more precious to the Lord than your obedience. God doesn't need you to come up with ideas, with your plans, even strategies. And I, and I tell that to myself as one who serves the Lord. Because that is all God's. He has the plans. He has the strategies. He has the ideas. All He wants is from us is a willingness to obey Him and to trust Him. Would you obey God and to trust in Him? But I must tell you, however, obedience is costly. Obedience is costly. Because as we can see in Joseph, because he obeyed God, he had to take the hit in his reputation very lightly and to endure the questions, the murmurs, the things, the whispers of what people might be talking about, his marriage and his son. But he did it because he wanted to obey God. This was a supernatural birth. Nobody would believe that this is supernatural except Joseph and Mary. The rest of the world in those in that time would not. Obedience is costly. I will tell you that. But what is the alternative? However, disobedience is costlier. Disobedience is costlier. Do not believe in the lies of the world and the evil one. That simply when you don't obey God and you choose your way to pursue your own ideas, own path, that you will reach a fulfillment, contentment, that you will be better off. I will tell you, no. It is costlier than obedience. Because if you obey the Father who loves you, who calls you His son, His child, the one who would honour you because you honour him, the one who would reward you with great inheritance, who would see you as righteous as his son, he would reward you in such great ways that your cost, your sacrifice cannot be able to be compared to what you have lost. But I will tell you for this, that if you disobey God, the cost is greater 
than you could ever imagine and bear for yourself. That's why we need to obey. And lastly, would you be willing to surrender and let God take control of your life and let Him fulfill His purpose in your life? Because of Joseph's obedience and willingness to take the hit, look what happened. God's plan of salvation was fulfilled in Joseph. And today, we are still talking about this man. We remember him, not only as a man who was just, who wanted to do what was right in God's law, but he was also a man of faith who obeyed and chose to follow God and not his ways. So let me bring to a conclusion here. What does this mean for you and I? Do you remember the main point of this message? That Jesus is the only one who can save us from our sins? Why? Because in this narrative itself, it proves to us that the virgin conception and birth is true. And because it is true, it shows that Jesus is sinless. Because if Jesus is meant to save us from our sins, then he cannot be part of sin. He must be sinless. The Apostle Paul and Peter themselves wrote in their letters to tell us again and again that Jesus knew no sin. He was not of sin. But because he, was no, he knew no sin and was not part of sin, was not under the sinful nature like Adam, like us, he could be the perfect sacrifice to take over our sin and be judged for our sins. The second thing is, the message tells us here that this is birth is from the Lord. It is purposed by the Lord. If you cannot accept the supernatural birth of Jesus Christ, then you can't accept the supernatural parts of the Lord Jesus Christ in what He has said. Because if this is not true, then all that Jesus has said and done are all lies. You have to accept this to accept all. And the last thing, Jesus' purpose in coming to be born as a human, as a baby in human flesh, is to save us from our sins. But why in such ways? Because He loves us. And let me tell you, you and I know, to love someone is to be vulnerable. And God is showing a, the way that He could help us understand that He loves us so much that He's willing to be, self, be Himself vulnerable to us by coming as a baby in human flesh. And if these are the reasons as to why Jesus is the only one who can save us from our sins, then it tells us that the greatest need for both you and I is our sin. The greatest problem in our lives is our sin. Not more money, a better job, a better family, a better prospect in life. No. These things might be important, but the greatest problem that we need to be addressed is our sin problem. Because if, your sin is, if sin is not your greatest problem, then you don't need Jesus. But if sin is the greatest problem and you recognize it, Jesus is the answer. And guess what? He is born for you this day for your sins. So, do you believe that Jesus is the only one who can save you? Let us pray. Father, we thank you so for your word in the Gospel of Matthew that tells us about the birth narrative of Jesus Christ and how it is true and it is extraordinary because he has come to do an extraordinary work that no one has ever done before and will ever do. 
to come in flesh to be with us and to come to be born in flesh in sinlessness to save us from our sins. And I pray for all of us here, both in Bishan and Adam, that we would consider this in our hearts, that our greatest need in our lives truly is our Savior to save us from our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's rise and sing our closing song together. O come, 